This is Me, Myself and Disaster, the show all about disasters with a human focus. From hurricanes to humanitarian issues, we journey across fault lines to explore trends in disaster preparedness, response and recovery, and understand how our guests became involved in disasters. Over to you, Josh and Andrew. Hello and welcome back to Me, Myself and Disaster, the show where we talk all things disaster with a human focus. The impact of the recent flooding in Pakistan has shocked the world. 765,000 houses have been destroyed and 1,500 people killed, including 552 children. These floods follow extensive flooding in 2011, from which the country is still recovering. Today, we're speaking with a leading researcher who was raised in Pakistan and now lectures at the University of Cambridge, focusing on climatic disasters and their interaction with politics, security and development. Andrew, who is joining us on the show today? Josh, these floods really are an example of a compounding disaster and many underlying factors including social and environmental issues that have been bubbling away are exacerbated by these floods. To dig through what this means for Pakistan and the wider world, we're speaking with Dr. Aisha Siddiqui who in addition to her role at the University of Cambridge has recently published a book exploring post-disaster politics following the 2010 and 2011 flooding in Pakistan. Aisha holds a PhD in war studies from King's College in London and has contributed to various United Nations and other policy forums on disaster risk reduction. On the show today, we'll be discussing the impact of the 2022 floods in Pakistan and the impact of climate change, the challenges between citizens and the state, how religion can impact disasters and how Asia became involved working in this space. Let's chat with Dr. Aisha Siddiqui on the leading disaster podcast in the Asia Pacific, Me, Myself and Disaster. Dr. Aisha Siddiqui joins us now from the United Kingdom. It's great to have you with us today, Aisha. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for inviting me. We've really been devastated by seeing all on the media, everything that's happening in Pakistan at the moment with flooding covering so much of the country. We've never seen scale uh, flooding on the scale of what we're seeing in Pakistan at the moment, and it's just almost hard to comprehend. For someone like Josh and I, we haven't been to Pakistan. Can you take us through what the impact of such a large flood looks like on the ground? I was recently um, in Karachi, um which is Pakistan's largest city. It's the commercial capital. Um, and it was relatively um, unaffected by, by the floods. The floods really have um, seemed to have swallowed up what is um, essentially the agricultural heartland of Pakistan. So uh, we're talking about um, a very large um, uh, amount of people settled along the Indus River Basin for purposes of agriculture, etc. And um, it is uh, everywhere along the river um, and for miles and miles that um, is, is, is flooded. And because um, Pakistan has a population of 180 million people, uh, we are talking about tens of millions of people affected. And um, all of the people who have been involved in kind of humanitarian efforts and things like that, um, they're talking about uh, not being able to see any land for uh, for miles and miles, just just water. 
And uh, because there's a young population, um, as in a number of countries in the global south, uh, children, um, schools, all that kind of um, infrastructure that's required to live a normal life uh, no longer exists. So this isn't, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the kind of flooding that uh, happens um, fairly seasonally or fairly regularly. The flooding event this year is pretty catastrophic and in some ways unprecedented, not entirely without comparison because of um, pretty bad flooding in 2010 and 2011 as well. So it's not entirely um, uh, uncomparable to things that have happened in the past, but in terms of the, the kind of sheer numbers affected, the sheer amount of um, villages underwater, things like that, it is, it is pretty unprecedented. I was just reading through some of the statistics this morning and it just really kind of hit home the numbers. It's something that I don't think, you know, we are, we see in Australia and it's really hard to kind of wrap our heads around the numbers. I think, you know, some of them was 1,500 deaths, more than, you know, over 12,000 injuries of those 552 children killed, 4,000 children injured. And, and it was really interesting that comment just made there, 22,000 schools have been reported damaged or are being used for shelters for humanitarian purposes. So just that notion of that almost anywhere where that flood has hit that all sense of normality and, 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 and what life would normally be has come to a, a to a grinding halt. Um, I, I also, Aisha, I understand that this flood is uh, in the Sindh province and that this is quite prone to flooding. This is not the first time that it's flooded. My understanding is in 2010, 2011 floods. Now this one, one thing that we've been talking across the Asia Pacific, we've been talking in Australia, is this compounding and cascading nature. What's the type of impact of a flood of this catastrophic scale after, you know, not having, even though, you know, 10 or 11 years before, but I would imagine that some of those areas in 2010 or 2011 haven't come back to, I guess, what we would, we would call a, some sensible normality. How, mm -hmm. like, how are those communities going now that this is the third flood that they've had and, and being that this one is so catastrophic? So, um, while Pakistan has uh, this year uh, flooded kind of up and down the Indus Basin, so uh, Sindh, the Sindh province is, is mentioned the most because um, a lot of uh, the devastation there has been the most extreme. So when you see those maps with um, the red areas indicating uh, the most number of, of villages affected, the most number of people displaced, etc., cetera, um, Sindh is often uh, the one with the most amount of red spaces or, or red um, mapping, but actually um, the Indus runs straight through, the, the river runs straight through um, from the north to, to, to the south. And actually even beyond um, the, the river itself, uh, parts of southwestern Pakistan, Balochistan, uh, the province of Balochistan, the south of, um, of, of Punjab, which is slightly upper um, on the, uh, higher up on the on the basin, so it's it's um, the flooding has affected um, very vast um, parts of the country beyond Sindh as well. But there are a few different reasons why uh, Sindh has um, is is deserves more attention um, within this conversation. Um, and and the first is that. Um, 
I did some work with um, a group called the uh, World Weather Weather Attribution, and they've uh, published their study um, earlier this week or last week. I can't remember on. Um, looking at climate models to see uh, the extent to which uh, had human-induced climate change not uh, taken place or if we were not at the greenhouse gas emission levels kind of post-industrialization um, and we were if we were still at the um, pre-industrialization levels, um, what the impacts uh, or, or what the intensity of the rainfall would have been and, and what it has been now after human um, emissions into uh, carbon emissions into the atmosphere. And they have um, uh, reported with significant um, or, or some degree, let's not say significant, let's say with all of the, um, um, uh, you know, uh, uncertainties around uh, some of this, this, this modeling, they, they're still pretty certain that um, the rains that Sindh and Balochistan in particular experienced, which were 50% greater than the, than the, their average. And in some cases, um, were uh, particularly over a, a very uh, short period of time, over over a five day period, they experienced this intense um, onslaught of rainfall. That this is uh, very likely the product of human induced climate change, right? So when we begin to talk about things like uh, to what extent our global, <clears throat> excuse me, our global north um, uh, carbon emissions are responsible for for this degree of uh, devastation in in global south countries for people who have been left vulnerable, etc. Um, looking at the the rainfall in Sindh and Balochistan, it's really possible to start to um, to get into some of those debates around loss and damage and um, uh, climate reparations and, and and things like that. But beyond that, very kind of um, at that that very bureaucratic level, you know what what, what those debates mean, etc. Sindh has also historically been experiencing um, a real kind of degradation of the of the delta. The way that the river is managed upstream makes it quite difficult for. Uh, water to naturally flow downstream and these are already communities that have been made vulnerable because of um uh, Pakistan's uh, water management paradigm, which has also historically been um, the paradigm that was um, utilized by uh, the British Raj during imperial colonial rule, um, which was really around the mega projects and the large uh, infrastructures and things like that. So all of that has resulted particularly in the lower um, Indus Basin in, in southern Sin uh, for communities to already be very vulnerable to, to have no longer be able to practice the forms of livelihood that they were practicing in the past, etc. So the kind of more uh, quote unquote natural or physical um, side of things with regards to flooding in Sin has also been extreme because of the intense rainfall. And then some of the social vulnerability produced through these long histories of extraction and exploitation have also um, been particular, have left populations here particularly exposed. So that kind of, and, and as a disaster studies a scholar, we always talk about disasters being the product of the hazard mapped onto or, or intersecting with the, with the vulnerability. And you see both of those quite, um, quite clearly in, um, and, and, and perhaps I, I overemphasize it because my own work is on um, uh, the uh, parts of, of Southern Sindh, but um, th th that's where you, you really kind of see that um, intersection between hazard and vulnerability quite clearly.
In terms of climate change, one of the things that I find personally hard to grapple with is that I guess most people in Pakistan probably in comparison to other parts of the world will be quite low carbon emitters. So in terms of emissions per person, it's actually a whole lot lower than those countries who aren't facing a disaster risk as badly as what Pakistan is. And we're seeing the same thing play out here in the Pacific, where we're seeing places like Kiribati, who are facing the, the early impacts of climate change and sea level rise compared to other countries who keep emitting carbon, but aren't facing the same pressing issues. Is climate change seen as a risk in Pakistan? And what actions being taken around reducing that climate change impact? So uh, just today, the uh, climate change minister, or it might have been um, yesterday, um, has uh, 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 written a piece for The Guardian in the UK that was um, that's just been published, making a very strong argument for um, loss and damage, um, for uh, the climate finance loss and damage uh, system within the, the COP27 um, debates to be uh, institutionalized and strengthened, and specifically for uh, direct pledges to uh, begin to make their way to, uh, to Pakistan, because uh, as far as uh, the state is concerned. Um, the state line on this, the state um, messaging on this is very clear that Pakistan contributes um, uh, like 0.4% of um, the world's uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And yet it has been on the front line of this kind of um uh, this kind of um, extreme weather event, which is um, which now we know is 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 a very likely to have been uh, made worse because of anthropogenic climate change, uh, and so there are very. Um, uh, very vibrant and very active conversations going on in civil society around the topic of climate reparations and um, the the loss and damage uh, structures of uh, COP27, and also on things like um, uh, debt relief, because when you have uh, a country that needs to to, to rebuild and, and reconstruct um, so much, not just physical infrastructure, but really uh, try and um, uh, put in place uh, a range of different early warning systems, et cetera, to, 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 to prevent something like this uh, from being this devastating again. Uh, does it really uh, make sense for them to be spending um, money on servicing debt? Because for, uh, with a lot of these big uh, IMF and um, international financial institution um, um, restructuring packages, et cetera, what, what Pakistan fundamentally uh, ends up spending a lot of money on is just paying the interest on, on the loans, not even actually repaying the principal amount of the loan. So is it really fair to, to, to have Pakistan um, in, in, in those kinds of, of, of situations when, um, you know, there is a very, very real um, need for climate finance to be mobilized to help millions of people right now? It's a really interesting conversation, obviously, the COP27 debate now starting and, and, and people having that. And I'd be interested to hear 
What's the sentiment from the community? Because obviously COP26, many of us would remember the debate around the language of uh, phasing out and phasing down coal from, uh, you know, one of the key countries leading that was obviously India and, and having that conversation. In that part of the world, what is the community sentiment around that? Because it, like Andrew, as Andrew said, it raised a really good point in that, you know, a lot of Asia Pacific countries, yourselves are on the front line of some of these things and not necessarily have contributed to the problem but as countries are still developing, how do we maintain that and prosper and, 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 and give countries that, I guess, that opportunity? What's the community sentiment in that, given that they're on the front line of these disasters, but also would almost have this internal struggle that, well, it's our turn to be a developing nation and, and, and prosper and, and see ourselves further down the road? Um, the, the, in, in some ways, I would um, kind of take this back to... Um, uh, uh, an earlier um, um, or, or or kind of roll back roll back the uh, the discussion a little bit to um, not necessarily just being focused on the way that the UNF C and particularly the various cops. I mean, we're at number twenty seven now, so we know uh, we, we we've all kind of um, you know been, been seen this rodeo before. Um, the the point is that. Um, instead of just making this a very um, bureaucratic exercise of, um, you know, there is a, uh, a, a, a zero-sum game where, uh, you know, if someone gives in, in, in the global south and someone loses in the global north, and, and, and that's how the whole uh, cap and trade schemes are, are set up. For uh, or for us to reduce our emissions in the north, let's go and uh, and and re- remove emissions in the south, and then and instead of kind of making this a very um, yes, some kind of a um, you know game that that everyone has to play, I think it's more important to ask questions that are more structural, and that in some ways um, we can't get to the root of just by having these climate um, delegations. Uh, Communities in this part of Pakistan have suffered from long histories of extraction and exploitation of which the most recent kind of um, uh, manifestation is the floods and and the way that climate change is unfolding. They have been made vulnerable and and, and left kind of very exposed because of the way that um, uh, particular forms of power, uh, European colonial rule, and subsequently the way that the post-colonial power structures have remained the same. Uh, that 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 whole history of um, state building in the post colonies, that whole history of um, extraction and exploitation has has continued, and that that has very kind of actively uh, resulted in these people living along the delta in this way. Um, exposed to um, a whole load of of, of uh, river management projects, etc., that make them particularly vulnerable. So I think they they have a very clear sense. Certainly in uh, the work that I did uh, ten years ago in um, Lower Sin, they have a very um, clear sense of uh, you know why and how and and who is responsible for them uh, being being made vulnerable in this way um, whether they specifically kind of um, are interested in the 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 mechanisms of, of cop 27 and all of that is is I think 
um, less um, it's 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 less um, on the forefront of their lives, but uh, they have a very clear sense of how the climate is is what is um, resulting in this kind of exploitation right now or, or problems right now. But historically, um, also they have been they've been left exposed to a whole range of vulnerabilities. And speaking of vulnerabilities, the social issues are often exacerbated by major disasters, and that's something we see around the world. I'm wondering, though, in terms of physical infrastructure and mitigation, uh, following the 2011 floods, was much done to improve uh, physical infrastructure, such as flood levees? And in Pakistan, is there a desire to build bigger flood levees and other physical methods to build resilience to these types of disasters? So Pakistan has historically and recently a number of uh, um, different academics who work on on this issue have have written about it in um, in articles. Pakistan's a whole kind of um, flood management paradigm has been very much uh, focused on engineering and on structural um, changes and and. Uh, looking at, at at ways in which new projects and new um, infrastructures can be built um and and that has been done of course to the detriment of in some cases the softer approaches like more early warning systems more um decentralized approaches more community participation and, and things like that and in other cases particularly where um you know the the um, goal has been to try and keep irrigation water in. Um, it has resulted in real drainage problems, including some of the problems we're seeing even right now, where uh, in the lower uh, Indus Basin, there are a number of towns where the water is just stagnant. It has nowhere to go because so much of um, the natural water courses and the way that um, the, the basin used to, used to work has entirely been... Um, been changed with uh, all of these, um, you know, top-down uh, approaches to 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 engineering and and um, uh, building and, and and constructing. So I think what Pakistan needs is really a much more kind of a decolonial approach to understanding uh, ways in which uh, they can work with the river, with the flows of water, with um, indigenous knowledge systems, et cetera, rather than try and, 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 and impose something completely different on them. So on this, I always quote uh, an example from the 2011 um, floods uh, where, where I was doing work in, in, in Southern Sin, uh, a, a large number of my interviewee, um, of my interviewees and um, research uh, respondents who who I was speaking with um, said that that their their homes and their um, lands were not flooded by the rain or by the river, but really by this very large drainage project, which is supposed to bring a lot of irrigation water from the north um, of Sindh into and and drain it out into the sea, and that um, uh, project has. Um, it, 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 it's it's so large and it has so many different pieces that need to work in a particular way. And it, it 
also when the when the tide is really high um it results in in reverse intrusion water comes back up from the sea and all sorts of issues related to this large drainage project that resulted in in entire villages being um being affected by flooding not because of the river or because of the um the the rains but really because of um this belief that only engineered solutions can 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 help pakistan and not um paying attention to um more community based and participatory approaches we've had the same debates in australia recently we've had really massive floods that have impacted most of the east coast of australia in in this year and there's just this hesitation from i guess there's a there's an enthusiasm from the community to build a bigger dam build more flood levees but really just pushing the problem to someone else's side of the river or down the river and it actually doesn't fix the problem whereas that sort of implementing new early warning systems engaging the community community building community connectedness um, that's been shown and it's such an easy way to have that immediate impact rather than waiting 10 years to build a gigantic high flood level which isn't going to fix the problem absolutely yes absolutely and this has been a real real challenge a lot of um, there's a lot of work on this in the context of pakistan as well that um really there is there is a need to change the way that um water is managed and um uh understood as not something that that needs to be almost uh, in that very um neoliberal uh, in those very neoliberal terms like a resource that needs uh to be um you, you know used in a particular way and 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 not really understanding that deltas that rivers are are living ecological beings that 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 have a particular course and a particular life and you can't you can't just use them as 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 commodities it's just it just doesn't work that way and I think it's I think it's also um, you know a lot of these things obviously driven and and you were talking about it before Aisha around that that investment paradigm. But the funny thing is is that often some of those community grassroots bottom up approaches you're getting much better better bang for buck out of your investments. You, you know you're not spending as much. You know obviously these large engineering programs you're spending hundreds and and millions of dollars. Um, and sometimes some of the most effective solutions are some of the most simplest, and that's how we actually work with our communities and help them understand the risk around them and what they can do in terms of their own personal responsibility. But I just want to shift this conversation because I think it's still really relevant and it's something that you write a lot about in your book and I find it fascinating and I think it's very much um, an, an interesting intersection in Pakistan between disasters and the government for those uh, you know listening to the podcast that may not be you know really familiar with Pakistan's kind of government structure, can you just take us through in terms of you know day to day how politics and and how that structure works, and then what that looks like in a disaster, how that response looks like between community and the government. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll do my best. It's a, it's, a, it's a big <laughs> it's a big question and the subject of many books. I want to say not just mine, but I'll do I'll, I'll do I'll do my best. I think um, to a to a non um, kind of expert audience, there'd be a few things I'd I'd highlight. Okay, um, one is that uh, over the course of um, this um, the unfolding of this disaster a lot of questions have been raised around particularly outside of pakistan in western countries and things like that um 
on, you know, accountability and corruption and is it really worth uh, giving money to Pakistan or should people even be going to their closest, um, you know, charity drive or whatever and, 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 and give money if it's not even going to reach people more, who need it most, etc. And I find that a very, very problematic discourse to, to, to be peddling, okay? Because sure, um, there, may be, uh, there may be problems in the way that things are, are managed in Pakistan, but there are also at the same time problems in the way where I live in the UK where things are managed here, right? And there are problems in the way that um, large corporations are able to fund particular political parties or political elites, even in the Western world. And, and no one says, oh, this is corruption they just they just kind of they just kind of move forward with that as being part of the system right so i think to particularly single out countries in the global south and say you know they have they have this real serious problem but we over here we're kind of we we have it all all figured and sorted that's that, that that's really problematic so i would really encourage people to kind of push past that discourse and to recognize and i think this is really important and 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 quite critical in 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 my book as well, that really nobody has the reach of the state. If you want to, to really reach out to people affected by flooding, this idea that actually, um, you know, you can do it better if you if you support um, someone's auntie or someone's uncle that who are, I, I mean, sure, they can they can reach out to, to a small number of people, but the kind of reach that the state has that, I mean, it's the state and, and, and it, it's, it's able to um, get to places where where um, many uh, NGO trucks cannot cannot go. And on this, what I specifically say with regards to the 2010 and the 2011 floods was that, and I and to some extent, I want to say that um, uh, even now, that has proven to in 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 some uh, with 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 some um, uh, nuances and some uh, issues been largely uh, proven to be true that when the disaster hits, the state in 2010 and 2011 was um, relatively uh, good with uh, managing immediate kind of disaster relief. So the setting up of camps, the um, uh, instituting a, a, a very large cash transfer program that reached out to all people who were uh, domiciled um, in disaster affected um, areas. The, that kind of immediate um, relief and, and 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 rescue and things like that for the most part um you, you know it, it, it was put in place and it was um uh, instituted with with of course some some problems but largely yes what the state in pakistan has been not good at and i and i think we're seeing um we're likely to see similar things now as well is with that long-term planning you know so now in 2010 we had a fifth of of, of the country in the water uh, underwater why is it that 12 years later a third of the country is underwater why is not why is it not even less than a fifth uh, than a fifth right so so that kind of long-term planning where um it, there, there is a, a closer look at how uh, early warning and anticipatory action can be taken, how communities can be brought on board, things like that. And to a very large extent, that is the kind of um, 
of, of long-term planning that requires the financing. So even in 2010, we saw that a lot of pledges that were made, the money didn't actually come in. The, the pledges were made, but um, people forgot about it and moved on to the next news cycle. So unless and until there isn't sustained support for um, uh, Pakistan to, to uh, you know, move forward next five years, next 10 years, to just kind of have this uh, short burst of interest and then and then no um, financing to, to, to continue these, these programs, they are likely to have very limited uh, impacts. And uh, God forbid, we are likely to see um, another disaster in the near future if, if, if that, that kind of sustained support isn't continued. Mm. In terms of the interaction between, because um, my understanding is obviously um, in the past, obviously the military had a really big role in, in Pakistan and obviously it carried a lot of influence as well. And obviously we've seen a bit of that tension play out with Imran Khan and, and there's some, been some court um, issues and, and whatnot, but it sounds like it's it's getting better. But I, I think it's that really interesting notion talking about how if you haven't got a government that's really thinking of that strategic looking forward um, and, and how you get that long-term investment, because something that we've We've even had here in Australia, um, we have DRFA, which is our funding arrangements that we have un- un- after disasters. And there's all, there's a lot of conversation at the moment that that funding's only there for two to three years and that it, it takes a long time to actually put those strategies in place and complete them and do that work. But then there's also the money, not once you've obviously done the work, but then how do you maintain those strategies? Obviously, if you put put in place long term, there's that maintenance funding. In terms of that, that uh, relationship between military, government, citizens, does that, does that make disasters more complex or, or how does that play out in the disaster space? Um, I would say, and I think that this is um probably uh, true in in places where you don't necessarily have this kind of tension either but perhaps we we see a more kind of um intense version of it in Pakistan that um disaster risk management is still uh very much kind of um a command and control it's top heavy it's um you know, uh, structures are, are are very much kind of federal level. They control the resources. They so um, under the National Disaster Management Act, there is a setup which says that uh, you have the National Disaster Management Authority at the federal level, and then you have the provincial ones. Uh, so Pakistan has four provinces, so you have four PDMAs. And then every district is supposed to have a DDMA, the District Disaster Management Authority as well. Now, in principle, um, they, or th- this is there. In practice, the DDMAs don't really have any teeth. They, they, they aren't really able to do much other than um, collect data on you know what the damage has been, what's happened, that kind of thing. When I've lo- when I've worked in other um, countries in the globe in the global south, with often um, uh, resource levels very similar to Pakistan, and I often talk about the Philippines because they're the big uh, disaster um, uh, kind of. Um, managed well story. And uh, when when I worked in the Philippines, every 
um, almost village level uh, had a, a, a committee and, and there were chairmen and there were captains and uh, they were responsible for um, or, or at least communicating some kind of warning. They were responsible for ensuring that at least some people um, uh, practice the evacuation drills, etc. It was a much more kind of every village, every community level um, story, disaster risk management. In Pakistan, it's so top heavy and so kind of command and control um, that a lot of that um, disconnect uh, really prevents um, more um, effective disaster risk planning to from, from taking place. For, for Pakistan to go on that journey, Aisha, what do you think needs to change for that? Like, for them to take that sort of approach on, what do you feel needs to change in Pakistan that would actually enable that some of those strategies, some of those bottom up? Um, you know, how do we actually decentralize and give some of this responsibility and, and put it in the hands of you know um, the the local individuals? And we often know in disaster management is that the lowest possible level is often the most effective level to manage disasters. What needs to change, in your opinion, so we can get Pakistan, that Pakistan can get to that space? So, you know, as a post-colonial scholar, I always come back to ideas of um, colonialism as a as a historical process may have ended. Like, sure, um, uh, you know, um, uh, the. Um, way that European empires um, control parts of, of, of the global south doesn't exist anymore. But um, imperial knowledge structures and this belief that uh, Western science is the only way kind of forward and um, this idea that only uh, engineering-based solutions. And so so in this way, we again have so much uh, literature that talks about how the state can can then proclaim to to control this science because it has all the knowledge, because the state has the uh, geoengineering facilities and the hydrometeorological facilities and all of that. So you, you just keep everything at that very top level. For things to genuinely decentralize or um, decolonize, um, you need to recognize that there isn't just one way of knowing nature and knowing the environment, and that there are multiple ways to know them, and that one of the ways to know them is obviously through a much more indigenous, um, locally grounded approach. Until we don't get to that level where um, knowledge, these kind of knowledge hierarchies are not really broken down and, and systematically. I think, of course, we have to um, convince bureaucrats in Pakistan that, look, we need to bring um, local village um, communities into, into this conversation. We need to set up teams. We need to have um, this kind of um, a, a, a bottom-up uh, approach, but can can any country, not just Pakistan, do that in isolation from the way that the world works? Right. I, as a social scientist on disasters, am regularly. Um, I, I'm a social scientist who works on disasters, is based at the University of Cambridge in the UK, and I am still challenged very regularly by people who say, yes, but but where are the models and where are the numbers? Because I don't look at models and numbers, hence my research is automatically kind of considered um, less scientific than, than research that looks at numbers and models, right? So I think the 
the really important question for particularly us and in, in, in who are interested in in the study of disasters is to is to break down some of these very long-standing hierarchies of knowledge and recognize that um you know the, the knowledge that is not produced on uh, models and and, and numbers uh, is, is is just as valid and can be just as rigorous if it is uh, systematically done i wanted to ask a bit more of a, a challenging question which i think we already know that disasters are so inherently political and that's true everywhere in the world. Politics is linked so inextricably to disasters. Um, and that's going to happen forever. But I'm wondering when politics and religion are so intertwined as they are in Pakistan, what impact does this have on disasters? So um, in uh, uh, social media, on um, Twitter and stuff, um, there has been a reporting that um, there are a lot of um, uh, journalists and kind of people who, who went to some of these affected communities right after the disaster um, uh, heard stories of uh, local mosques announcing on their, um, their speaker phones, et cetera, that um, they had heard that particular embankments had been breached and that the water was coming and all of that. So actually they were able to play quite a positive role uh, where they took that um, that that step and were, were proactive about it. And actually um, mosques can be used as um, uh, you know, community centers to um, institute some of this tra- training around thinking about disasters, um, around uh, early warnings, uh, announcing early warning uh, messages. And so I'm not sure that I would um, I would only see um, uh, kind of negatives here. I would see uh, opportunity. I think there is there is way there are ways to mobilize um, uh, through uh, the space that uh, the mosque provides. Um, at the same time, I don't think that it should be only through um, through uh, such such mechanisms because clearly that's going to exclude um, you know everyone who's not who's not part of a mosque community. So I think it should just be one of a number of things that that need to be done. Um, but I think in some ways also um, these are our conversations that need to be had. Um, by uh, communities within Pakistan, like to what extent they want, um, you know, uh, the the religious um, spaces or um, uh, processes or structures to be part of disasters planning or not. I think what 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 can be done outside of Pakistan is um, to uh, in some ways not use um, these kind of disasters in 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 broader uh, geopolitical games. So in my 2010 uh, in my book on the 2010 and 2011 floods, I was quite critical of this aspect of um, um, the way that. Uh, a lot of um, reporting in 2010 and 2011. I even have uh, some of the the articles and and, and stories from then were presenting um, 
the floods in Pakistan as some kind of um, binary situation where, uh, you know, the West must step up its aid efforts or Islamist hardline is that liners are going to win. So it's us or them. And, 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 and it was that kind of um, uh, uh, um, incentive that was being um, bandied about for um, uh, aid, aid to uh, reach Pakistan. And that was not only incorrect, as I've uh, shown in my book, but also um, also really problematic on a number of different fronts. And we've seen just how um, how that that was so directly connected to what happened um, in, in 2010 in terms of generating, because it did successfully manage to bring some money to Pakistan, because this time round, the uh, commitments from Western countries have been complete, have been negligible. They've been pittance compared to what, what, what was promised in 2010, because that geopolitical imperative um, with the US out of Afghanistan, et cetera, just doesn't exist to help Pakistan in that way. So I think, Rather than at these critical moments, think about oh, uh, what does what does this mean for some kind of bigger, um, you know, geopolitical uh, win or, or or strategy? I think um, the the focus should really be on um, what is the best way to ensure that there is some long term and sustained disaster risk action that Pakistan is able to continue with. I think that's a really interesting point because I know this is a conversation that's obviously really starting to unfold within our own backyard in Australia across Asia Pacific, obviously, um, you know, Solomon Islands, um, no doubt many of our listeners have probably heard some of the stories most recently with China and some of these issues. And I know it's a conversation we're unpacking now in terms of disasters almost becoming a geopolitical issue. But I really liked what you said there, Aisha, about that at the end of the day, obviously, yes, that's a lens that we need to um, obviously look things through. But at the end of the day, it, it's, it's about the community. It's about the individuals. Um, you know, we can't use individuals in countries as pawns for broader um, geopolitical issues. And I think that's something that I'm going to keep in the back of my mind because, I, I mean, I'm fascinated by it, but it's something that we have to remember that these are people we're talking about and people's lives. And then when you look at the Pakistan floods, the ones that we've just seen, um, yeah, extreme devastation. Uh, just to finish off, because we're running out of time, one question we really like to ask um, of all our guests is, you know, disasters isn't obviously a, a field that most people go, I'm going to grow up and uh, be a disaster professional like like some kids go, I want to be a, a fire person or I'm going to be a police person. Um, it, it's, it's not a career, I guess, that is, um, you know, a really defined pipeline. Can you help our listeners kind of understand what what got you into disasters? What you know drew you into this space or into this field or got you interested in in the area? Um, so I think that um, um, for me it was uh, a, a, a number of different things that came together. I uh, did my PhD um, specifically looking at the the floods in uh, twenty ten and twenty eleven and. Um, I, I approached the, um, uh, the the project very much with a with a um, with a view to understanding um, you know a particular aspects of, of society and politics and all of that, but through the lens of of, of flooding. And then when I when I embarked on uh, that kind of project, where I thought, oh, I'm going to look at some of the political structures and the way that that society is set up, etc. But using the flood as the 
as the story to to um, uh, or, the, or the narrative through which to unpack these issues. Uh, as my, my my project kind of continued, and what often happens with qualitative research is that um, your 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 research participants are telling you a very different story, and and what they were telling me was much more about. Um, uh, you know, power and and um, politics and 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 all of that um, as being quite central to the floods and not just something that um, you could use the floods to study independently of, of everything else, but how um, the floods were inherently uh, uh, connected to the politics in the region. And uh, once I kind of uh, went down this path of recognizing that actually. Um, uh, exactly what we we started this conversation with that um, vulnerability is always socially constructed and, and politically constructed. It's uh, um, the hazard that 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 might come um, from the from the physical event. Um, I've I've kind of not looked back because there's there's so much we don't know about um, who and and why and how um, that vulnerability is constructed and. Um, I think, yes, many, many, many scholars um, can take uh, many, many years. And I think we, we, we may still not be kind of uh, closer to the answer. So there's a lot of, there is a lot of room here for anyone, anyone else who, who's thinking <laughs> of embarking on such a research journey. Um, come join us. I think there's, there's space, there's space for everyone who's, who's interested in, in, in the study of these issues. I think Josh and I always say that um, disasters really is really about problem solving, and this is a pretty most like the wicked most wicked problem in the world really is the number of disasters we're having. Add that with climate change and the other challenges in geopolitics going on at the moment. There's really there's not much things you could th think of the world that are pretty much as hard as what we're facing uh, in this space at the moment. But um, for our listeners who'd like to learn more, in the wake of disaster, Islamist the state and a social contract in Pakistan is the book. Josh and I have a copy and we're excited to get through the rest of it uh, and there's plenty in there to unpack so we'll be reading that for a while but Aisha thanks so much for joining us on the show and we look forward to chatting with you again soon. Thank you very much for having me. That's all we have time for on the show today. Join us again next time as we talk to more interesting guests from across the world about their experiences during disasters. We'll catch you then. Thanks for listening to Me, Myself and Disaster. Subscribe today at memyselfdisaster.com.